Ivy. Hi, Kim. Hi, Emery. Hey, Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of CNUSD Ed Chat. Yes, I'm so excited about this episode. We had an incredible historian speak to us, and I never thought I'd be so excited. It was fantastic. You are not alone in your excitement, Emery. You know, he's worked with so many people in our district, and he, you know, is a part of the Footsteps for Freedom. And a lot of our, you know, colleagues have participated in that and have gone on the journey as well. So this will be a great time. My first time actually talking to him. So who is the he we are talking about? And that is Hardy Brown. So we're so excited to have him join us for an interview. According to his Twitter handle, he is a leader in historical empathy and he has some really great stories to share. So I can't wait for y'all to listen. Let's do it. Welcome, Hardy Brown. Thank you so much for being on CNUSD Ed Chat. I first heard you speak at um, one of our staff days and I right away enjoyed your stories and the work that you do. And I thought, I want to get you on our podcast. And it got really busy teaching in a pandemic, but I eventually reached out to you and you were so kind and gracious. Can you start by just introducing yourself and telling us a little bit about your professional background? Perfect. Uh, my name is Hardy Brown. And I'm the chairman of the board, Black Voice Foundation. I'm also uh, the managing partner for Footsteps of Freedom, our underground railroad tour. But before I even get into me, I just want to say to each one of you, thank you so much uh, for everything that you've done going through this pandemic. Uh, I know this is difficult, difficult work. And, and I thought about as we were going through this, the fact that it's been a hundred years since we've had a major pandemic that has shut down our entire society and our world. And educators like you all have figured out a way to continue on. And you continue to inspire your students and staff. And, and so I just wanna say thank you so much. So a little bit about me, um, our, our family, we run the Black Voice newspaper out of Riverside, California. Uh, and I'm also, I work out of the San Bernardino office. Um, I'm also an elected official in this particular area. And for the last 24 years, excluding COVID, uh, we've taken educators on tours of the Underground Railroad. And uh, where it started was um, we had an issue where there was a teacher um, decades ago teaching that um, slavery was not that bad. And so it became a huge story. And my mother at the time wanted to be a problem solver with it. So what she did is she partnered with um, some districts here and started taking educators on underground railroad tours and said, okay, this is what we're going to do. We're going to teach you exactly what happened so that you can teach it into in, in the classroom um, as, as a complement to your work and your, your classwork. Um, it then started to morph into leadership, into development, into historical empathy and, and, and growing people's their heart so that they can really make the real change that we need in education. Now, you mentioned historical empathy and, and your bio says that you are a leader in historical empathy. And I just want to be honest and say that I had not heard that term before. What is historical empathy? And can you describe your work with young people and historical freedom artifacts. So I wanted to show you all um, some information and some things from our from our um, collection. Uh, and I was doing a lot of research on my family and my father has gone all the way back uh, to the 1700s. And uh, this beautiful picture that you all are able to see, your listeners aren't able to see it, uh, is 
is, is a beautiful home in Jones County, North Carolina, right? Wouldn't you guys agree that it's beautiful? Well, this is actually the plantation that my family was enslaved on. Oh my gosh. And I tell this story because when we talk about historical empathy, it's really understanding what people have gone through, what is their story, and then finding a way to take the commonality of our story and, and see how we can grow together. And so this is not a stock photo. This is actually a picture of uh, the Ku Klux Klan in that particular area. This is something my father took a picture of. And we would always have these conversations. And in having these conversations, he would just tell us about what it was like to grow up in a sharecropping community as an African-American man, working in the fields, doing the different things that he was doing. But then as we start to have these conversations, I start to learn about the leadership of my family and the fact that uh, my grandfather would step up and always speak out uh, on behalf of, of those who had no voice. He would join the NAACP and be a part of those conversations of leadership and change in their community. And so when I tell those stories of historical empathy about my family, the next thing that I do is I ask the person who I'm talking to, well, tell me about your family. Tell me about what it was like for you to grow up. And once we start seeing the similarities between where I grew up, where my family's from, and where they grew up and where their family is from, that's where we can start to break down the barriers and really bring us closer together. And it becomes a real genuine conversation, not just a political statement, but it's a real genuine conversation because when you know someone, uh, it's harder for you to hate someone. And so that's what historical empathy is, uh, the ability to perceive someone's lived experience and putting yourself in their shoes. So you were just explaining, you know, the depth and the breadth of historical empathy. So when you look at that through the perspective of um, how our educators might be implementing or facilitating either, you know, even historical empathy in the classrooms, what suggestions do you have for educators um, on how to develop, you know, historical empathy with their students? I am a 100% I'm down with with um, primary sources and being able to take those documents and being able to share those documents, which you all are looking right now, is a letter from a university in 1959. In this particular letter, one of the ways that I would manage this, this talk with educators is I would ask them to look at this letter. And this letter says, in 1959, uh, to a person who applied to the school, I'm sorry, you cannot come to our school. You are not authorized because you are a member of the Negro race. And then I asked the question, you know, what emotions does this letter evoke in you? What would you feel like if this was your child? What would this be like in your home? And once you start to have those conversations, you start to lead into different discussions. And those different discussions opens up to primary sources. It opens up to to um, all of our family stories. It opens up to understanding and looking up the information to see if it's real or fake. Uh, but it helps the teachers and the students um, be able to um, move forward in the conversation. And I would imagine it helps teachers and students understand that um, this wasn't very long ago, you know? And so like even looking at this later letter, 1959, uh, we have, you know, students that are in the house you know, and they're they're right there, immediate family with um, older family members that this they may have very well experienced this. And, mm -hmm. and you're right. I think sometimes we forget that um, in our multi-generational homes, our kids are coming with those experiences, even though they were not there in 1959. They right. still have those experiences and carry them with them. And one of the things that I would tell people to do, tell children to do, is to have a conversation with the oldest person in 
in your family. Go go talk to, if it's not your great grandmother or your grandmother, your grandfather, go find a great aunt or a great uncle. Right. And then just ask them questions, interview them and find out what was their life like. And they'll tell you stories that mm-hmm. will blow your mind because you'll be like, wait a minute. I remember this in our history book, but this is what our family was doing at that same right, time. Right. And it really gets them to see their family in a totally different light. And imagine if that was an assignment from, from an educator. And then of course they have to they have to really be able to manage that properly because we don't all have rosy family stories. And so <laughs> they, they have to be able to manage that as pro- that properly. But that's what a great educator does is they inspire um, people to do research, to understand, and then to be able to break down the conversation so they understand what they're doing. You are the chairman of the Black Voice Foundation and a part of the Footsteps to Freedom Tour. We've had several colleagues in our district, leaders, teachers um, participate in the experience, and they've always said amazing, wonderful things about it when they come back. They are moved, they are transformed. Can you share with our listeners what the purpose of this tour is, what a person might experience that goes on it, and then what action do you hope takes place within the organization or from that experience? So we have taken the tour, like I said, for about 24 years. My mother and my father started it uh, back in the 1990s. And um, in doing that, we've had all different types of people come on the tour. Uh, We started off with just social studies teachers where we were trying to teach the the primary source uh, and then the history. And then we started moving into administrators and school board members and superintendents. And then we said, okay, let's start taking community members and police officers and let's figure out a way to really build in and have a conversation about change. How do we make a a real change? And so what you all are looking at right now is on one of the stops on our tour. We actually go to Harriet Tubman's home and her burial site in upstate New York. And we learn the true story of this great Shiro. And when we hear the story of her, her background and the legacy that she lived, people start to understand there's more to the story. Well, that's what this entire tour is about. So you you leave from California, we're actually working with a number of other states as well, but most of us, we leave from California, we go to Ohio, and the tour is over a seven day period. We go to Kentucky, Ohio, Michigan, we drive across Canada and end in upstate New York. And, and I know in your mind, one question is already coming up. So what happened to people when they went to Canada on the Underground Railroad? That was something that I started to think about. And I said, wait a minute, what did happen to them? So on the tour, we actually address those things. We address those things by going to the communities that are still there by the descendants of those people who ran away. And we introduce our educators to them so they can see exactly what they did. We go to places like Uncle Tom's Cabin or the Buxton Settlement or places like that that you, you've heard of but you may have not realized that it was a real place. And so we go to all these places and we teach them and we train them and we have them having conversations with the local historians and they see how how things have impacted those communities and they can see from then and then they can see from today. And then at the end of the tour, we start to ask the question, now what do you wanna do? And it doesn't have to be an underground railroad thing. It doesn't have to be a black history thing. This is all of our combined story. And it's a combined worldwide story of freedom, of greatness, of us coming together, of us working together. And we use these stories to be able to inspire the educators and the community members so that they can come back to their community and then go to make change. And that's what we're trying to do. Just out of curiosity, do you ever hear back, you know, or I'm sure you have over all these years from 
people who have gone through the tour and then maybe they did do something and it might be a variety of things, whether it's curriculum or some other, I mean, can you share any that maybe stand out to you? Yeah. Um, so that's that's actually part of my job. And that's what I do is I actually follow up with all the educators. I stay in touch with them. I'm texting them all the time saying, hey, remember you from this position? Your job is to do something special. And I write down every one of the things that they say at the end of the tour. And I follow up with them to make sure that they are doing those types of things. So we have a number of people who said, you know, I've always been afraid to go back to school. And I've always wanted to go get an administrative credential, or I wanted to get another master's degree, or I want to go get my doctorate. And so we inspire them and we follow up with them to make sure they're doing that. Uh, We've had in, I want to say, in the last five years, we've probably had at least 15 people go back to school and get their doctorate degrees. We've had a number of people who've gone back and become uh, administrators who were in the classroom. They said, now I'm being called to do new things. And then one of our biggest stories is Dr. Judy White. Dr. Judy White went on the tour from Riverside. Uh, she was actually there from Moreno Valley uh, as a superintendent. And when she was on the tour, she says, I want to do something different. I want to do something bigger. Wow. And then she came back and applied and became the first African-American to be the superintendent for Riverside County. And so you see those stories over and over and over again, and it inspires me every single day. Um, That's one of my favorites. But then another one, there was a young lady, uh, and she's from the Inland Empire, I'll say in in just the Inland Empire, and she's, she's an educator. And I remember having a conversation with her, and she said to me, you know, I've always felt uncomfortable with this conversation. I didn't know what to do. Um, I didn't know what I was getting into, but I want to do more, but I've always been afraid. And so I said, well, what do you want to do? She says, I don't know. I I just want to do more. She then turned around, started writing grants, started writing new lessons. She's a a, um, English language teacher. And so she would turn around, write new lesson plans that would tie in the work of freedom and us coming together. She turned around and did a quilt project where she where she helped the students develop squares and they put to, put together a quilt that went to Washington DC that told the story. Uh, she also helped with their HBCU recruitment. Their historically black college and university recruitment helped over 1500 students get accepted to college right on the spot. And she did that even when she was afraid. And so we we tell those stories so that when people see it, they can say, I'm afraid, but if they can do it, I can do it as well. That is incredible. Um, you also are working with history educators around the women's suffrage movement. Can you touch a little bit on that work? About, I want to say four years ago, we were driving past, um, we were in upstate New York and we were looking on the map and we said, wait a minute, we're really close to Auburn. Let's go up and visit Harriet Tubman and William Seward and all those folks. And then we found out, wait a minute, we're really close to Seneca Falls as well. So we started to add in the concept of Seneca Falls and the women's suffrage movement. When we got there, we found out something that I think some of our historians knew, but I didn't know. And it blew me away. And it's that at the Seneca Falls convention, there was one man to speak. And the one man to speak was Frederick Douglass. He was the one person to be able to speak there. And, and the reason that was such a big deal is because when we talk about Frederick Douglass, um, and I always talk about this when I'm, when I'm reading to students, you know, when he was enslaved as a child, um, he was learning to read and his master's wife was teaching him to read. And the master walks in, slaps a book out of her hand and says, if you teach a slave to read, you will unfit them to be a slave. 
I'll say that again. If you teach a slave to read, you will unfit them to be a slave. Frederick Douglass knew at that point that he had to fight for freedom, fight for education, fight for all these different things so that he can make a change in his life. But then he turned around after becoming free and then opened the door by speaking all over the world for other people. The, the abolitionist conversations that were going on during that time and the anti-slavery conversations, they also were the same exact people who ended up starting working with the suffrage movement. And you start to see those combinations when you go to the sites. I'm, I'm a big believer in going through and reading between the lines and finding those, those little nuggets of stories of us that come together, um, that, that bring us together versus divide us. And so I'm always trying to find those on our tour just to inspire people to let them know, listen, we can choose to be on the right side or the wrong side of history is your choice. But in 100 to 150 years, people are going to be reading your book and they're going to be reading your story. And what do you want your family legacy to be? When you had a choice to make a difference in today's issues, did you choose to be on the right side of history or did you choose to be on the wrong side of history? I feel like that's the mic drop that ends this podcast, but <laughs> we do have a couple more questions. Um, I love that you brought up that story in Frederick Douglass because one of my favorite quotes of his is once you learn to read, you will forever be free. What are you reading, watching, and following these days? Last year, I read 50 books. I read all of the current books, but then I went back and I read a lot of the classics as well. Um, I've read things like um, original pamphlets. Um, I've read things like Cass. I've read things like How to Be a Not, uh, what is it, Anti-Racist. I've read things like uh, White Fragility, but then I've also turned around and read things like books that you guys have probably never heard of, John Rankin's Letters. 1835, Reverend John Rankin, he was a white abolitionist, white male Presbyterian minister. And there's a reason why I'm saying this. He was born in Tennessee. And when he was born in Tennessee, he was born into an area where they where they believed in slavery. And he ends up hating slavery and he moves his family to Ohio, to an area where they do not allow slavery. He moves to the top of a hill. And on the top of this hill, he can overlook the Ohio River. It's in Ripley, Ohio, and they can overlook into Kentucky. Well, there's a black man, his name is John Parker, who had a business down at the bottom and uh, closer to the river. And what they would do together, this particular town, they became an abolitionist town. This abolitionist town where you had this black man who would help people run and get away to freedom would hide in Reverend John Rankin and his family in their barn. And that was one of the first stops on the Underground Railroad. And, and the story goes, when we're in Cincinnati, we always hear this story, is that one day bounty hunters were chasing an enslaved person um, that was trying to get away. And when they were chasing them, they couldn't find them. They were like, where'd they go? Where'd they go? Where'd they go? And they said, it's almost like they disappeared on an Underground Railroad. That's where the term comes from. And so this town is super famous because of so many different things, including the book Uncle Tom's Cabin. This is where Eliza actually crossed from the book Uncle Tom's Cabin. And there's a marker there in the town that shows exactly where she did. But the town came together and it was blacks and it was whites. And so when I take these stories, I look at these stories and they inspire me because everything that we're taught and we're told is that we should hate each other. Everything that we're taught and we're told is that there's always gonna be this friction but when I go through the letters and I read the original documents, I realize that there is a certain set of people who want hate. And there's a certain set of people who want to bring people together. And then there's a certain set of people who say nothing at all. 
I like finding those people who work together because when we tell those stories, again, it starts to inspire people to say, if they could do it back in the 1800s, the early 1800s, then why can't we do this in 2021 and beyond? That's fascinating. It's always true too. I find like when we hear these stories, stories are what make us human and it also is what connects us to each other. So I I love hearing and sharing these stories. Yeah. And I find new stories all the time. So uh, one of my research uh, in our collection, I have this, this civil war rifle and I picked it up just recently and I didn't, I know a little bit of the story, but I didn't know the whole story. And I found out about the story, just kind of doing this thing where I'm digging through archives and finding people And and the story is the story of Addison White. And what happened with Addison White, it is his rifle. And Addison was an enslaved person in Kentucky. And when he was enslaved in Kentucky, he was like, deuces, I'm out. So he runs away, runs away to Ohio, becomes a free person, is there living in the town. And then the, the Fugitive Slave Law of 1850 happens. That is the same exact law in that same exact bill that makes California become a state, which is why it's important when I look at these documents, it's California and Texas actually. And so when these, when these, when these, um, when this happens, bounty hunters start to come and they knock on his door because they're going to take him back because the law says, if you find him anywhere in the United States, you have to take them out, you have to arrest him, and you have to pull them back into slavery. And so when they get to the town, the black people. And the white people come together and they start to chase off the bounty hunters with 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 rakes and picks and hoes and all kinds of things. And they said somebody had a gun and that they chased them off. And then later they bought his freedom for nine hundred dollars. He becomes free. That was a story. I thought this was the rifle for it. Kept doing a little bit more digging. And I found out just within the last I want to say maybe even 90 days that the rifle has more of a story because about 12 years later, he signs up when he hears that there's a civil war. He signs up for the colored troops. He ends up joining, going to Boston and becoming a part of the Massachusetts 54th. The Massachusetts 54th is very famous because that is the colored troops that went down and fought in the civil war. And when we look back at the movies that we kind of grew up with, that is the movie Glory. So this this book, I mean, this, this rifle is from that particular person who fought in that battle during the Civil War. And now we can take it and talk about how he was enslaved, made it to freedom, and then turned back and fought for freedom for not only himself, but for other people as well. One other thing before before I kind of wrap this up is I want you to know something that I'm using um, with my language. I talk about freedom seeker. I talk about enslaved. I don't say slave and I don't say necessarily just runaway. And the reason why I don't say slave is because these people were human. They were fathers, they were mothers, they were sisters, they were brothers. They were medical people, they were, they were farmers, they were planters, they were inventors. They were leaders that were born into a system that enslaved them, that were kidnapped into a system that enslaved them. They had laws put on top of them that turn them into the property. That does not take away their humanity. So they were humans who were enslaved by our system and they fought for freedom and they were freedom seekers, not only for themselves, but for other people as well. Thank you, I appreciate that. And in, in this group, we're language arts teachers and literacy lovers. So we know more, more than anyone that word, words matter. 
So can you share with us just a little bit some of your insight or just your advice on what are the conversations we should be having in our classroom? And I want to extend that to both the secondary world, um, where these conversations, they, they happen quite often, but also to our littles in the elementary school world, um, mm -hmm. because oftentimes we hear they're too little, um, they're too young, they're not ready. Um, and is that true? How, how young is too young? What, what might be your advice? Um, I don't believe that any any person is too young to be able to hear this information. Our kids are brilliant. I have a 13-year-old daughter who's who's doing um, schoolwork in the other room right now. And she came to me the other day and we were having this conversation. And she said, Dad, did you know this? And I was like, where did you learn that from? I didn't teach you that. And she said, from TikTok. I was like, what? And she said, yeah, on TikTok, they have these historians who are doing these TikTok shows. And I was like, oh my goodness, I had no clue. And then I thought about from the standpoint, if, if kids are young enough to be able to feel the effects of racism and the history that, that they have lived through, then people should be young enough or old enough or, or wise enough to be able to experience how we can fight together. Again, it's not a system where I want to scare people, but I think that this is a conversation that we can teach them at their level. For example, if we're talking about Harriet Tubman, we don't just need to say that she was a runaway. What we need to say is that she was a freedom seeker who ends up becoming a spy in the Union Army and helps lead men. She was a woman with power, with influence, with passion, with, with, with a drive to make change. And if kids, kids, they get that. They understand that. And then when we're talking to parents, what I like to do is I always like to go through, especially policy. So if you look on the screen and you all can, I can even send you this so that you can put it up in as something for the listeners to, to watch um, later on. But this is Virginia Code of Law 1849. And what it says in here, these are the laws and the policies that were in states. This is Virginia, and it says, every assemblage of Negroes for the purpose of religious worship, when such worship is conducted by a Negro, and every assemblage of Negroes for the purpose of instructing in reading and writing in the nighttime for any purpose shall be an unlawful assembly, punishable by stripes. Punishable by stripes. So that whenever they're looking at pictures where they see things like that, they start to understand where those pictures come from and how you have those particular pictures. In the same time, in the same exact book, the very next paragraph in offense, it says, if a white person assemble with Negroes for the purpose of instructing them in reading and in writing, or if he associate with them in, a, in an unlawful assembly, he shall be confined in jail, not exceeding six months and fine not exceeding um, $100, which is about $5,000 today. I think that it's important when we look at these laws and these rules, um, no matter what age, for them to be able to understand this is the system that we've had. And this system really affects everything that we do even today. For example, when we look at kids in the 1800s, this, this newspaper is from 1867, this is students learning in the streets, scholars learning in the streets after a civil war, you know, during Reconstruction, because they wanted education, they're learning in the streets. But then I take that conversation to today. And I say, look at the digital divide and remember back just in 2020, where there was two Latinas who didn't have Wi-Fi at their home. So instead of just sitting there and not doing anything, they went down to the local Taco Bell and they pulled out their computers and they started to learn. And it showed me, one, how valuable education is, but two, it really showed me that drive in our young scholars. 
if we ignite that 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 spark in them and show them that anything is possible through education then they'll be able to use that education and empower themselves and 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 take themselves to levels that they didn't even know they they could take themselves to You've given us so much to think about today, Hardy. And, and I know there's also even more that our listeners are, are really kind of digesting right now. And, and there'll be even more when we put, you know, some of your, the photos that you're sharing with us today. So our listeners can see those, um, all of what we're kind of digesting and taking in and thinking, you know, what can we do now? And so that kind of leads us to our very last question. And we asked this question of, of all our, um, our guests. And it, it really is asking, you know, what can we do? Okay. Where, where do we go from here on? So we have a segment called tomorrow, this week, this month. And with so many changes occurring in 21st century education, you know, and learning, what advice can you give to our teachers and, or to families to try tomorrow, uh, to try this week and to try this month? So for tomorrow, the first thing I can say, and this goes through all of them, is stay safe. Stay safe. We are in a pandemic. And if you go back and look at the history of the pandemic of 1918, you'll start to see how serious this is. So make sure that they stay safe. That is important. Um, But then secondly, start having interviews. You know, we talked about this earlier. Um, While we're at home, sometimes we're multi-generational, sit down with your grandma and just start asking questions. Sit down with your, your father or your mother or your grandfather, your auntie. Ask them questions. And, and one of the things I've learned is even do it on tape, like have conversations on tape. And then this week, I would do even more of that. What I did with our daughters is I had a conversation and there were some really good videos on the civil rights movement that happened in, in Greensboro, North Carolina, with the sit-ins of the Woolworth counter. And when I saw it, I was like, you know what, I'm going to have a conversation. So we did a Zoom session just like we're doing today. And I had my parents come in on the Zoom session because that's where my father's from. And as we were doing the Zoom session, I would have my daughters with my parents sitting there watching it. And my parents would say, okay, stop it right there. Do you see that building right there? Your uncle used to work in that building right there. Do you see that little place right down the street? I used to go there and pick up a little ice cream all the time. I knew exactly what was going on right there because it was the town that was a part of history. And so I would do the same thing even next week is make sure that they have those conversations, look at their family history and their family legacy, because then they're going to start to understand the shoulders that they that they stand on. They're going to understand what it was like to get to America, what it was like to get to where they are today. Are there people in your family that are entrepreneurs that started business? Are there people in your family that were part of military that served our country? Are there people in your family that are educators, are preachers, are people who are political leaders that changed laws that made a difference for the world? Who are these people in your family? And then how can you take those stories and build from there? So that's today and then that's that's this week. Looking out future, I think that we need to start having conversations with people we don't agree with. And we need to not be afraid of those conversations. One of the things that I did when I first got uh, elected to the school board is I started calling a couple of people who I knew had different political beliefs, but they were open to conversations. And I called and I said, let's start talking. And they looked at me like, what do you mean? I said, Let, let's, let's, let's just have a conversation. I want to know what your family is about. What is your, what happened to your family? And I want to tell you our family story. 
to this day, we're still friends. We don't necessarily agree politically 100%, but because we know each other, we know each other's family, we respect our opinion. And the vitriol is left outside. And I think that's what we have to do is we have to get to the point where we can start to have conversations, see each other's stories, find out where we can work together and the things we can't work together. Let's just move those to another day. That's that's the bigger, bigger thing for me. And, and then and then lastly, you know, I started having conversations with with so many people that have been changed by this tour and the exhibits and the, and the work that we do that we started to record it. And one of the questions that I do in that in that recording is I ask the question. In 100 to 150 years, when we're looking at your story and we're looking at your book, what do you want history to say about you? What do you want history to say about you? And I get amazing responses all the time. And so I'm always excited to see the change that's going to happen to a lot of people. Thank you for that, Hardy. And and I think all of us here today just really want to say thank you for coming and spending some time with us. Uh, this has been an, an awesome, you know, little bit of time and we have so many more questions, but only so much time to be able to record all the amazing information that you have to share. So thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. You know, ladies, I think this was one of our very first episodes where we had someone bring an entire presentation of historical artifacts. And I don't know about you guys, but that was amazing. And it was a shame that this was a podcast because I know for myself, my mouth was dropping and all the different artifacts he was showing us just right there in his house, like thousands of things were right in front of him. So we continued the conversation because we just couldn't stop. So for for the very first time, you will be able to find a link in our show notes to a YouTube video that's sort of like an after party conversation going on. And we will also be sure to share that on our Facebook page. So everyone, thank you for joining us as you do regularly. And we hope to continue to be able to bring you some amazing guests here at CNUSD EdChat. That's right. So thank you for listening to another episode of CNUSD EdChat. This episode was co-produced by Kate Jackson, Amory Cortez, Ivy Yule Eldridge, and me, Kim Kemmer, and edited by Ken Pucci.